Well, please again keep Revelation chapter, chapter 11 open as we come to study it this evening. Uh, tonight is really the second half of a sermon that I began this morning uh, under this theme, the witness of Christ's church, the witness of Christ's church. That's what Revelation chapter 11 verses 1 to 14, I believe, is all about. We're standing back and taking stock right before the seventh and final trumpet sounds, which signals the end of all things. Revelation chapters 8 to 9 described for us the first six trumpet blasts. And just like the first six seals that we looked at earlier in the book, the first six trumpets symbolize for us partial present judgments of God upon our world. Judgments that God has been sending to, in some measure or other, ever since the Lord Jesus returned back into heaven. And in some measure even in in years gone by before that. This morning we began studying this passage which, which tells us about the experience and the witness of the church during this time of limited judgments of the trumpet blasts. And I said this morning that uh, having looked at those six trumpets, the question that we're supposed to be asking as we come to this little interval in chapters 10 and 11 is, where is the church? What is happening to the church while the six trumpets sound? What is the church supposed to be doing? And we saw two things in response to that this morning. We saw, first of all, that Christ's church in these last days is known and protected by God. Christ's church is known and protected by God. In verses 1 and 2 of Revelation chapter 11, uh, you have John there being told to measure the temple of God. And we considered how that is a picture of God knowing and protecting all his people, the church. Uh, Revelation, just like the rest of the New Testament, frequently describes the church or the saints or the people of the Lamb as, the t- as a temple or the temple of God. Not a temple of bricks and mortar, but of men and women. It's a people, not a place. And the point being made here is that throughout these frightening and difficult and demanding days that the church must live through, she is nonetheless sealed, loved, known by God. And then we also saw this morning that Christ's church in these last days is empowered to witness. The church is empowered to witness verse 3 says that God's two witnesses and I tried to explain this morning how I think the best interpretation of the two witnesses is that they symbolize the church the whole church Uh, Christ's two witnesses uh, prophesy (coughs) for 1260 days which is also described in this passage as 42 months which works out at three and a half years Roughly the same amount of time that Jesus' public ministry lasted for on the earth. Also the amount of time uh, of which there was drought uh, when Elijah declared there would be drought, no more rain in the land of Israel for three and a half years. Interestingly enough, I don't want to push too much of these numbers, but um, 42 months as it's described also there uh, in verse 2. Well, the Israelites... If you total it all up, spent 42 years traveling from Egypt to the promised land because they were two years going directly to the promised land. And then because of their unbelief at the border, they had to then wander for 40 years after that. 
And so the point is, friends, that the church, just like Moses in the wilderness, or just like Elijah in his day, just like our Savior Jesus in his time on the earth, the church has a limited time during which we must witness. We must be like Moses or Elijah. We must be like lamps on a lampstand, willing to stand out in a dark world and call people to repentance before judgment comes. So those were the, the, the things we considered this morning from this passage. And there are two more uh, aspects to the church's witness or the church's experience in these last days that I want to think about this evening. And so thirdly, this evening, we see that Christ's church will suffer like Christ suffered. In these last days, Christ's church will suffer like Christ suffered. Not exactly like Christ suffered, but like him nonetheless. Look at verse 7. When they have finished their testimony, that's the two witnesses, I believe, symbolizing the church. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in the tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and so forth. What we're being told about here, friends, is what will happen to the church immediately before the very end. Immediately before the very end. And the reason we know it's immediately before the very end is because verse 7 says it will happen when they have finished their testimony. So when the three and a half years or the 1,260 days are over or almost over. And we're told that at that point a beast will rise up against the witnesses of Jesus Christ, conquer them and kill them. We're told that this beast comes from the bottomless pit. That's the same place that we saw Satan and demons emerge from in chapter 9. So this is a a demonic being or or a Satan-inspired or uh, a being under the the command and influence of Satan. Now again, we're not expecting a literal beast, a lion or a bear or something to attack the church. Instead, what this beast beast represents is in the words of uh, G.K. Beale, a great commentator on Revelation, this beast represents a final kingdom on earth that will persecute and defeat God's people. Other preachers suggest that this beast is the Antichrist figure who will be mentioned uh, later on more, more in Revelation. It says that this beast will conquer them and kill them. Verse 9 goes on to say that for three and a half days they will be dead until eventually, verse 11, they are resurrected. And so their defeat is only temporary and we'll think more about their resurrection a little bit later. But let's not miss the seriousness, friends, of what's being said here. A time will come when the church, having borne witness to Jesus Christ, will appear to be, appear to be totally defeated. Now, again, I know I keep saying this, but I just want you to be crystal clear. This is all picture language. This passage does not mean that the church will someday 
cease to exist. We don't believe that. The church will remain on earth until Christ returns. In the vision it is the two witnesses that are conquered and killed and left for dead in the streets and rise again from the dead three days later. And it is a picture for us of how the church will appear, how it will appear to the world immediately before the return of Jesus. In the eyes of many people, the church will seem small, pathetic, defeated, as good as dead. And this seems to be the same thing that Daniel was prophesying about in Daniel 7, verse 21. We read it earlier. As I looked, this horn, that is a horn on a beast, made war with the saints. Notice that, the saints. That's another way of describing the church in general. And prevailed over them. Until when? Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. So the beast is seen to prevail until Christ appears. Until the judgment. At the time, Daniel 7.21, when the saints possessed the kingdom. So friends, what these passages would seem to suggest is that the pattern of church history will be intensified at the very end of church history. And what has the pattern of church history been? Well, it's been that the church often appears to be defeated. And yet the witness of the church continues. And the church itself continues and is never completely written off. If you know your history, you'll know of the the savage treatment that Christians received in the early centuries of the church at the hands of Roman emperors like Nero and Domitian in particular. They were made social pariahs. They were fed to the mouths of lions in some cases. Yet by the time of the emperor Constantine, so undeniable was the spread and influence of Christianity and the church so dramatically had it grown and changed the world in many senses that the emperor proclaimed it the official religion of the Roman world. You might say there was good sides and downsides to that, but the point is that he was not able to ignore any longer the impact and influence of the church. And then over time, the church spreads and grows more, but false teaching and power grabs and abuse of authority creep into it. And by the time of the 14 or 1500s, the church, the official church, is a corrupt institution riddled with false teaching and all under the assumed authority of a pope. And yet interestingly, I came across this from Joel Beakey in my preparation. Shortly before the Reformation, on the 5th of May, 1514, this statement was read in the Lateran Council of the Roman Catholic Church, gathering together of the leaders of that church. A statement was made, the whole world is now subject to one hand, even that of the Pope. No one now opposes us, no one now objects. Thought they had the world in their hands. And then three and a half years later, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church. And so began the greatest revival and reformation in the history of the world. But let's not forget, friends, that that reformation involved the blood of the martyrs. William Tyndale burned to death. October 1536, Hugh Latimer likewise, 1555, many, many others. 
Yet the Reformation roared on. The blood of the martyrs was indeed the seed of the church. And that has continued right up into modern times. In 1949, the communists in China managed to kick out the last Western missionary in the country. And everybody in the West thought, that's it for China. We did our best. We were there for 100 years or so. No more missionaries there anymore. But God didn't want to use Western missionaries to reach China. He wanted to use Chinese missionaries to reach China. And today there are more Christians in China uh, than we can possibly count accurately. Millions of them. Uh, Some projections suggest there could soon be more Christians in China than there are people in the United States. And the Chinese Communist Party is scared to death that someday there will be more Christians than there are communists. And so what are they doing to them? Torturing them, imprisoning, imprisoning them, perhaps even killing them, trying to conquer them. But the church has survived for thousands of years, survived Rome, survived the emergence of Islam, Roman Catholicism, Bloody Mary, fascism, communism, secularism. The church has survived it all. But friends, the church has suffered. The church has been persecuted. This, the beastly, monstrous, hate-filled world in which we live has targeted the church and attacked the church again and again and again. And it will continue right up until the end. And indeed, Revelation seems to be telling us that there will be this intense period of time right before the end when it gets even worse. Notice verse 8, what happens to these two witnesses. Their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord is crucified. Uh, Sodom symbolizes and sums up the sexual immorality and paganism of the world. Egypt, a symbol for the persecution by the world of the church. Jerusalem, where Jesus was crucified, A failed religious city, so to speak. And so taken together, friends, this verse tells us that the beast that attacks the church, uh, in a sense, it's all around us. That The power of that beast, in a sense, is all around us. And in the false religions of the world, and the hatred of the world, and the immorality and idolatry of the world. The world is at war with the church. The world will produce this beast at the end. And the world loves it when it thinks it has beaten the church. But there is encouragement for us here nonetheless. Verses 9 and 10 say that the bodies of the two witnesses are left unburied for three and a half days. As I mentioned earlier, as Psalm 79, a shameful thing for a body to be left unburied. These two witnesses are left in the street. That's a sign of the hatred shown to them by their enemies. But they're left for three and a half days, just as Jesus' body remained, albeit in a a respectable tomb, for three days or three and a half days. Friends, the, the, the message there is that the church is going to suffer in the same kinds of ways that Jesus suffered. That's how we know that we really belong to Jesus. You don't have to have died a martyr's death to know that you belong to Jesus. But to be part of the body of Christ, to be part of the saints who 
suffer when one part suffers and who mourn the loss of those who are in the front line of, of mission and who do give themselves up, give up their lives in the service of Christ. This is how we know we belong to Christ. If we suffer in any way like what he suffered. Jesus says in John fifteen eighteen, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And in verse 20 of that chapter, Jesus says, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Matthew 16, 24. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. To follow Jesus is to go and die like Jesus. To die to reputation, popularity, the respect of the world, the appreciation of the world, the understanding of the world. If you follow someone, you go where they've gone. You uh, ardent followers of certain celebrities or you know, actors or whoever it may be, they, they want to go to the places those people were in. They want to experience some of the things that those people have experienced. Well, friends, Jesus experienced hatred, ridicule, and people wanting him dead. And if we experience even a fraction of that, it's because we really do belong to him. Just consider how Jesus, and that should be an encouragement, consider how Jesus' apostles reacted the first time they were beaten by the Jerusalem authorities for preaching the gospel. Acts 5, 41 they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. The witness of the church, friends, will mean suffering for the church like Jesus suffered. There are Christians in Northern Africa today or in North Korea or Iran whose bodies are literally left in the street having been murdered for their faith. There are Christians in England who have lost their jobs as teachers or council workers or hotel owners. There are Christians in China meeting in secret locations, with pastors on the run, Bible translators looking over their shoulder because they're willing to take up their cross and follow Jesus and witness for Jesus. And we might not be asked to make those same kinds of sacrifices. Well, if not, all the more reason for us to gladly make whatever smaller sacrifices we are called to make. <clears throat> Perhaps it will mean not getting the promotion or not even going for the promotion because of what it might mean for your schedule or for uh, the, the temptations that might put in front of you or the pressures it would put upon you uh, from a worldly perspective. Perhaps it will mean not being included by particular people not going where your friends necessarily go, boys and girls. Not going out with someone you might like to go out with, young men and women. Not spending as much money on things you might otherwise spend money on. All because you want to take up the cross and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Do those things not sound rather light compared to what others have suffered in the name, for the name of Christ? Are we willing, as Paul said, to suffer the loss of all things? To count them as rubbish, if only we might know and love and serve our Saviour more wholeheartedly. Friends, to some measure at least we are going to suffer. 
The world will scoff and laugh. The world will literally dance on the grave of Christ's witnesses at times. We're being warned here that the witness of the church will cause us to suffer like Christ suffered. And right at the end, this intense time when the beast will attack and conquer the witnesses. So we've seen that Christ's church is known and protected by God in these last days. We've seen that Christ's church is empowered for witness. We've seen that Christ's church will suffer like Christ suffered. And fourthly and finally today, we see that Christ's witnessing church will be victorious. Christ's witnessing church will be victorious. The world will think it is one. The beast will think it's utterly destroyed and conquered its prey. But then look at verse 11. (coughs) After three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. The language there is very strongly echoing the language of Ezekiel chapter 37. Some of you will be familiar with it, the valley of dry bones. And the breath of God comes into them and they're restored and they stand on their feet. And again, friends, it's described very deliberately here to remind us of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Three and a half days in the tomb and then he rises again. And what happened for Christ, it will happen in exactly the same way for us. We will be resurrected just as he was resurrected. We will be vindicated. We will be victorious. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This time of year, I think I'm right in saying, we're bringing in the last of the harvest. The first fruits of the harvest is just a little bit of much more to come. And that's what Paul means by calling the resurrection of Jesus the first fruits. Jesus' resurrection is only the beginning. The resurrection of all his people is still to come. Notice verse 12. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud. Again, that recalls Jesus going up into heaven in a cloud. Acts chapter 1. And notice this. Uh, This is still verse 12. Their enemies watched them. Their enemies watched them. No secret rapture, public rapture, an obvious rapture. Everyone sees it. And this is the end of all things, friends. This is not some moment before, another long time before the end of all things. Because as you see in verse 15, the seventh trumpet sounds. Judgment day arrives immediately afterwards. This is the vindication of the church Vindication means that you are eventually seen to get what you really deserve. Verse 13. This is right before judgment day itself. Verse 13. At that hour there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Another partial judgment. 7,000 people killed, a tenth of the city. The warning is, more is coming. Here are the birth pains getting closer and closer together. And then, as I say, verse 15, judgment day arrives with the seventh trumpet. And that will be an awful moment for those who danced on the graves 
of Christians or who laughed at the bodies of Christians in the street. At the very end, when it is too late, they will realise they were telling us the truth. But now the judgment has come and there's no escape. Where will the church be when that judgment comes? Safe at the right hand of Jesus Christ. Vindicated. Victorious. Resurrected. What is true of the Lord Jesus Christ will also eventually be true of all who have loved him and followed him, suffered in his name. Friends, the world will see it. Everyone who hated us, who persecuted us, whether they literally spilled Christian blood or whether they just quietly scoffed and switched off when a Christian spoke to them, whether it was on a door in Dremore, County Down, or in a prison cell in Pyongyang. Every one of them will see the church resurrected, the church taken up in glory, the church united with her King and Saviour in triumph. And part of the agony of hell will be that unbelievers will have to live forever with that image burned into their minds. That image of seeing Christ and his church triumphant. And they'll be thinking to themselves, that could have been me if only I had believed. And I hope that won't be you. Whether you're here in the building or whether you're listening in from another time or place, I don't want you to live with the torturous knowledge that had you only repented and believed that you would have been saved. I hesitate to use what might seem a very trivial illustration, but if it makes you think of this again when you see it in future, perhaps you've seen some big sports events on TV, the World Cup final or something similar, and there's that moment at the end when the winning team are all together on the stage and they lift the trophy and they're bouncing up and down and the music plays and the confetti comes down and they're triumphant and they're celebrating. And then the camera shows you the faces of their opponents who have stayed out on the pitch out of respect for what their victors have accomplished and they force themselves to watch but they would rather be anywhere else at all because they know that that could have been them. Dear friend, don't be standing there when the end comes, looking at the triumphant church of Jesus Christ, thinking that could have been me. That is a thought that will torture you for eternity in hell. Instead, seek the Lord while he may be found and call upon him while he is near. Jesus Christ can save your soul. He can forgive your sins. He can raise you from the dead. He can give you this everlasting life. And fellow Christians, that is what is waiting for us. If only we stay true to the witness that we have been called to bear in these last days. Yes, that witness will be costly. Yes, that witness will invite the world's ridicule and hatred and perhaps even violence. But resurrection, victory, vindication lies ahead. I mentioned Alistair Begg this morning. I credit him for this story with which we close. 
In the 1920s, a man called Lord Reith helped to establish the British Broadcasting Corporation, the BBC, and he served as its first Director General. <clears throat> as the BBC began to be carried along by the tide of secularism that swept through Britain in the 1960s, a young producer stood up in a meeting and said to Lord Reith that the world was changing and the BBC didn't need to continue with its religious programming. People were no longer interested in religion, he said. And the church was becoming increasingly irrelevant. And Lord Reith, who was a six foot six uh, severe man from the highlands of Scotland, told this young producer to take his seat and then declared, the church will stand at the grave of the BBC. And it will. Beastly, Satan-inspired people might be Dancing on the graves of our brothers and sisters in Africa or Asia. People might scoff at the gospel of John or the invitations to church that have gone through their door in Dremore. But Christ's church is known and protected by God. Christ's church is empowered to witness in this world. Christ's church will suffer. But Christ's church will rise in triumph when this world comes to an end. So Christian friend, will we not witness Will we not take up our cross for these 1,260 days that we might enjoy endless days of glory afterward? Amen.